We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today's show features Andrew Basevich. He is the president of the Quincy Institute. He was kind enough to come on over the summer where we had a fascinating conversation. Andrew is a fascinating voice on foreign policy, um, a heterodox voice on foreign policy, not one that I I necessarily always agree with, but he has such an important perspective to consider. Um, and it was a real pleasure to have a conversation with him about what's unfolding right now in Ukraine. He makes a lot of interesting points, and it's just a it's just a great discussion that I was happy to have. He's calling in um, from I think he was outside, so you'll hear a little bit of background noise. But our philosophy is always to get the best guest um, on the program when we can get them, so that we can bring these conversations straight to you. So I hope you really enjoy this discussion as much as I did with Andrew Basevich. We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're back with Andrew Basevich. He is the president of the Quincy Institute and also the author of a new op-ed, The Ukraine Invasion is Nothing Compared to Iraq That I Want to Get Into. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Let's start in the first paragraph of this op-ed because it's an amusing one. You quote Thomas Friedman, who wrote, Our world is not going to be the same again because this war has no historical parallel. In the very next sentence, you say, he describes the Russian invasion of Ukraine as a raw 18th century style land grab by a superpower. So can you talk to us about what you do see as the legitimate historical parallels and what the, the Friedman mindset kind of tells us about our political establishment right now? Well, I think Friedman is an example of a influential uh, person who insisted that uh, when the Cold War ended, everything changed, uh, a, a new world dawn. His particular uh, shtick uh, was that uh, globalization and information technology uh, defined the essence of this, this new world. Uh, I have always been skeptical of that, and I think that uh, in some respects, we can cite the Ukraine war as uh, as demonstrating how wrong he was. Uh, you know, people in the Friedman camp, he's certainly not the only one, uh, insist that the world has now changed forever. Uh, I would argue that no, <clears throat> this is the, the Russian behavior uh, is kind of standard behavior. Uh, when it comes to great powers trying to pursue interests that they consider to be uh, vital. So the, the war is tragic. The war is to be regretted. Uh, certainly, Putin's uh, behavior is not to be endorsed in any way whatsoever. But it's not as if this kind of stuff doesn't happen from time to time. Did you read the the interview that uh, Mearsheimer did with The New Yorker that caused so much controversy? Uh, I, I did not, but I've heard reference to it. So he was the the contention of uh, the person who was interviewing him and others who have weighed in was that uh, realism has failed. That there is no sort of realist takeaway um, from this conflict that proves the philosophy correct. But I think what you're saying basically is that this is um, something that realists would lay out and say it was entirely predictable. Do you have you know we, there's no need to sort of linger in the philosophical weeds here, but on that question. 
and just given what you just said, um, where do you think this falls? Well, I, I mean, uh, I think the war was unnecessary. I think it was uh, avoidable. And I think the the key to avoiding it would have been to take Putin seriously. Mm. Uh, I think he was being candid uh, in saying publicly that the, the potential for Ukraine joining NATO uh, was simply unacceptable, that that uh, represented an, an intrusion into a Russian sphere of influence that simply could not be tolerated. Uh, it seems to me that his demand that the United States and the alliance affirm that Ukraine was not going to join NATO anytime in the near future uh, was something that had we listened to it, him might have enabled us to avoid this war. I'm, I'm couching it in, in uncertain terms because, of course, we can't know for sure. But uh, I don't. I don't think Putin is a madman. Uh, he turns out to be far more reckless than I imagined him to be. But I do think that, in many respects, he's a a traditional uh, statesman uh, who operates pursuant to an understanding of the national interest that serves the purposes of of, of Russia and our total disregard uh, of Russian interests going back to the aftermath of the Cold War is something that clearly has stuck in his craw for years. Uh, and I think uh, this kind of was the last straw from, from his point of view. Tom Friedman wrote back at the beginning of the war in Iraq, um, famously, he said, give war a chance. And one of the most poignant quotes in this most recent essay that you wrote for Spectator, you say history has not ended. Can you tell us more about what you mean when you say that? I assume it's a reference to Fukuyama, um, but also just to the, the foreign policy, I guess, blob and foreign policy establishment that really seem to believe with NATO and with all of these different global alliances, we could sort of grind history to a halt. Well, while not dismissing the importance of international structures and institutions, uh, and not dismissing the importance of and the impact of informa information technology, it does seem to me that we we remain a, a world order that consists of nation states. Uh, and especially the nation states that wield power, significant power, uh, they act pursuant to identified national interests, some of which are termed vital, and therefore, from the point of view of that nation, are worth fighting for. Others are, are less than vital, uh, and therefore are worth pursuing, but not worth fighting for. And Putin was very clear over and over and over again that Russia views Ukraine as a vital interest. Uh, he wanted Ukraine to be included in a Russian sphere. 
And U.S. leaders like uh, the Secretary of State said, oh, no, no, no. The United States doesn't believe in spheres of influence, uh, which is nonsense. <laughs> Nobody has been more uh, ambitious in claiming spheres of influence than we have. <laughs> you know, the Western Hemisphere is our sphere of influence. Europe is our sphere of influence. The Asian Pacific is our sphere of influence. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't in any way want to su suggest that I sympathize with Putin, nor would I ever want to justify uh, or seem to justify his actions. But it always seems to me that it's important in international politics to at least stop for a moment to try to understand the other guy's point of view. Mm. Uh, and the other guy, in this case, Putin, his point of view is that NATO expansion poses a threat to the security of Russia. And and by God, if we put ourselves in his shoes, uh, I think we would reach a similar conclusion. And you can understand why he would then be so um, aggressive when it comes to Ukraine. And I, you can understand without endorsing the worldview. And I want to ask, of course, why you think it is that so many Western leaders seem to have not understood Putin and the gravity of his threats. I think, you know, part of it is a deeply ingrained Russophobia uh, that uh, it certainly goes back to the Cold War. No, maybe it goes back to the Bolshevik Revolution. Maybe it goes back to the 19th century. Uh, you know, Russia has never been viewed fondly, I think, uh, among Americans. Even, even the period from 1941 to 1945, when we were allied with the Soviet Union against the Nazis, it wasn't exactly a warm and, and fuzzy relationship. So I don't think we, we, don't, we don't give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, to, to the Russians. And so I think that that probably inhibited any inclination on our part to, to view the, the Ukraine issue with even a modicum of, of sympathy uh, for, for the Russian point of view. We're hearing a lot of people now say it, it looks as though this has gone so badly for Putin. And this is people in the foreign policy establishment saying this has gone so badly for Putin that, you know, we, we might be on the the uh, the verge of a drawback or a, you know, the de-escalation. Do you think that perspective is informed by a similar underestimation of Putin and a, and a misunderstanding of, of what his ambitions are and what's at stake for him? Yeah, I think it's informed by uh, a hope that, that I share. You know, I hope there is an off-ramp that we are going to come across in the next two or three days and that there's some way out. But I have to say I don't see that off-ramp. I say that with great regret. I don't pretend to understand Putin's, you know, personality. Uh but flexibility doesn't seem to be one of his defining characteristics. Uh, I fear that the, the higher the price that Russia pays, and, and clearly it's, it is already paying a far higher price than, than Putin anticipated, but I fear that the higher price they pay, the deeper he's going to dig in. Uh, and that's, that's really troubling. 
because then that that holds out the possibility of of wider war. Uh, ultimately, holds out the possibility of nuclear weapons use. We always have to be mindful of that. You know, hadn't occurred since 1945. Well, not, now is not the time to break that uh, break that string. So, it seems to me that the thinking on our side has to <laughs> has to amount to appeasement, uh, in the sense that we have to ask ourselves at this juncture, meaning well into the war, with losses occurring on both sides. What what is the concession that we can offer? Uh, what are the concessions we also should be demanding on behalf of the Ukrainians? But what is the concession that we can offer that might plausibly provide the basis for an agreement between Russia and Ukraine and the rest of us as Ukraine's now de facto sponsors that can that can plausibly plausibly offer the basis for an agreement you know to to insist that uh, Putin as the aggressor to insist that he must get nothing he must go away empty-handed uh, he must go away humiliated uh, strikes me as a basis for not only not ending the war but as a basis for continuing it uh, indefinitely we saw and, both sides oh go ahead no please you I was going to say, we, we saw both sides uh, offer their terms when they came to a negotiating table that seems to have gone nowhere this week. And that included um, a pledge for Ukraine not to join NATO and to cede territory in eastern Ukraine. Um, so with the the lens of how plausible um, some of those demands are and how reasonable some of them are, what would you say those concessions um, as the United States is looking at this and as other NATO countries and um, global leaders, Western leaders are looking at this, uh, what would you say some of those concessions should be? On whose part? Ours or theirs? On on theirs. What should we reasonably expect um, Putin to give up, if anything? Well, I think I think he should he should give up what I take to be his current objective, which is to convert uh, Ukraine into a puppet state. Hmm. I expect, for example, uh, that at the present moment he would be absolutely uh, hard over that the Zelensky regime has to go away uh, and that a reliably pro-Russian regime should be installed in its place. I think right. that's an excessive demand that cannot be met. Uh, Zelensky's bravery uh, in, in leading resistance uh, has, has bought him a heck of a lot of respect uh, in the world and everywhere in the world, maybe <laughs> even in Russia, but certainly in the rest of the world. Uh, so there will be, there cannot be any regime change, in in Kiev. Uh, so that would be the kind of thing that would be, I think, off limits. On the other hand, lim limits on Ukrainian military power should be in in the mix. You know that that whatever military force Ukraine retains after this, that it's clearly 
defensive, that there's no power projection capabilities that Russians could, uh, you know, even only pretend uh, to view as, as as threatening. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it brings me to another question I wanted to ask, which was, um, how should NATO, how should the United States deal with the reality that according to polling, um, which is what we sort of have to go off of at this point, um, most Ukrainians want to join NATO. That hasn't always been the case. Um, and those numbers have shifted. But if this is a country that does want to be in NATO, uh, a sovereign country that wants to be a part of NATO, and, uh, you know, of course, other members of NATO should be willing to actually defend a country if they're going to uh, flirt with letting it in and posture that they'll let it in, et cetera, et cetera. But what are, what is NATO? What is the West to do with a country that is vital to the interests of somebody like Vladimir Putin, but does really want to be part of the West? Well, you know, my guess is that uh, we're going to hear a lot from the pilot, American politicians in particular. That however, however this war ends, there'll be the there'll be members of the Senate from both parties who will insist that Ukraine has now earned uh, its uh, membership in NATO. Uh, I think it's a bogus argument, and I think it won't f fly because remember that I think I'm correct in saying this. To gain membership in NATO requires unanimous consent by all the members of the alliance. Uh, so all, all of those members have to now sign up to the proposition that Ukraine will get the Chapter 5 guarantees. Uh, you know, will Germany mm -hmm. do that? Will France do that? Uh, I, I, I have my doubts. Uh, so I can certainly understand why Ukrainians and the Ukrainian government would want to join NATO, uh, but I, my guess is it won't fly. Uh, and I hope it won't fly because I think it would be an ill-advised uh, move, certainly from the point of view of, of U.S. security interests, frankly, probably also ill-advised from the point of view of Ukrainian interests. And when you have the entire foreign policy blob here in Washington, D.C., saying actually that is in the United States interest, um, what is your response to that? Well, you know, I guess it depends on your appetite for war. <laughs> uh, I think that U.S. national security policy over the past 30 years or so has been incredibly reckless. Uh, we have involved ourselves in needless wars that have turned out to be incredibly costly. I think our ill-advised military policies have directly contributed to the, the domestic crisis in which we find ourselves. I know there's, there, you know, it's a complicated, where did Trumpism come from? Mm. That's a question that has a complicated answer. But I must admit that I believe that one part of the answer to that question has to do with uh, involvement in unnecessary wars that turn out to be uh, mismanaged, that, that kill large numbers of American troops, uh, few of whom uh, are graduates of Ivy League universities, uh, 
And, and I think that a lot of Americans are, are totally fed up uh, with this misuse of, of American power that causes damage to our own country. Uh, and there's a great need for, for, for us collectively uh, to rethink our basic national security posture, to move away from repetitive wars, to move toward a foreign policy based on restraint. That's what the Quincy Institute is all about. Uh, and I would hope that the aftermath of the current crisis promotes an awareness of the importance of restraint. It could, however, promote a new bellicosity uh, where you know, somebody's going to argue that we need to keep a an armored division in, in, in Eastern Ukraine in order to keep the Ruskies at bay. Hmm. Uh, I sure as hell hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but one could imagine, given, given the state of American politics, that it, that it could happen. Huge tech companies in America pay next to nothing in taxes, meaning they barely give anything back to the society that made them rich. They may not do a lot of giving, but they sure do a lot of taking. Ladies and gentlemen, I am talking about how these tech companies enrich themselves by taking your personal data. They grab your web history, email metadata, and video searches to create a detailed profile on you and then sell that off to the highest bidder. Companies aren't just selling products anymore. They are selling you. You have become the product. To protect your identity and data from these tech giants, I recommend using ExpressVPN every time you go online. Think about all the websites you visit, Facebook, Twitter, Google, everything you do and say online is tracked by these giant corporations. Using your public IP address, they can uniquely match your activity and know your location. ExpressVPN makes you anonymous online by camouflaging your IP address and replacing it with a different secure IP of your choice. ExpressVPN also encrypts all of your data so that it's protected from hackers and anyone else that's trying to spy on you. And what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. So if you're like me and believe your internet data belongs to you and not to greedy corporations, then ExpressVPN is the answer. Protect your data with the number one rated VPN provider today. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist to get three months free of a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash federalist expressvpn.com slash federalist to learn more. That's a really good point. I, I want to ask what your response is to the argument that, or, or maybe the question of what Putin's ambitions actually are, if Ukraine is just the first domino in his, um, you know, we, there's this entire debate about whether he's an imperialist and when he, whether he's trying to resurrect the Russian Empire and the pre-Soviet Russian Empire, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, so that's what leads a lot of people to their warmongering in this particular case and to the calls for no-fly zone, et cetera, is that this is the first domino, thus it is, is critical to defend Ukraine with all of our might. Do you yeah. think that uh, what is your response to that argument? I imagine you disagree with it, but why? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't pretend to read the guy's mind. <laughs> Although a lot of people do. <laughs> I mean, I, I see him as a nationalist and, and somebody who believes in Russia's greatness and is personally offended that Russia has been humiliated over the last 30 or so years. And I, I think that that probably 
that that grinds his gut, and that is partial explanation for uh, the posture he assumes as the as the head of this country. On the other hand, I don't see the evidence that there's some kind of a new domino theory that motivates him. And even if that evidence existed prior to the Ukraine war, the progress of the Ukraine, the costs afflicted, self-afflicted on the Russians by this, would I think uh, make, make that expansionist imperial vision uh, not at all likely. I mean, my God, if, if, he, if, if Ukraine, not a great power, if Ukraine itself poses the difficulties that it is for Russia, then it seems to me they are not likely to say, well, by God, let's go after Lithuania next. Hmm. Now, were I a Lithuanian, I would be wary for all kinds of reasons. I'd be wary of a, of a Russian threat. But it seems to me that the course of this war, at least so far, uh, should actually make Lithuanians feel more secure, not less secure. Yeah. Back to your op-ed here, the headline on Spectator's site is the Ukraine invasion is nothing compared to Iraq. And I want to return to this question and and ask once again what you think the damage um, that our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan has done to the credibility of the United States when we are now trying to make this argument. And some people have done it laughably without a lot, with a total lack of self-awareness that, uh, you know, we must rally together because of this unprovoked uh, incursion into another country. So how much does our uh, involvement in those, particularly those Middle Eastern conflicts, damage our credibility on, on that question? You know, I mean, just as I don't pretend to be able to read Putin's mind, I don't pretend to be be able to read the minds of our of our NATO allies. Uh, to tell you the truth, I think that uh, again, f- approaching the issue from their own sense of self-interest, uh, they're willing to give us a pass for screwing up in Iraq and screwing up in Afghanistan uh, because they still see the 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 dimensions, the capacity of American power as something that works to their advantage. So they're not, they're not, you know, remember the Germans and the French, for example, opposed the Iraq uh, invasion with, with good reason. And were certainly justified by the events that followed. That said, you know, Paris and Berlin, they're, they're not trying to hold the United States accountable for our folly. Uh, they want to make use of our power to advance their to advance their own interests. Uh, more troubling to me is the fact that that is the absence of accountability within the, our own establishment. Uh, you know, we barely had begun to reflect on the the causes and consequences of our failure in Afghanistan. Longest war in our history, a couple trillion dollars significant losses, ends in abject defeat. It's just been no serious discussion of how that happened hmm. and, and, and what it all should mean. And in a sense, the Ukraine war encourages this amnesia 
let's not talk about Afghanistan. Right. Let's talk about Putin. Uh, and and I think that the result of that is uh, an opportunity to learn uh, and to reflect that ends up being totally wasted. Have you been satisfied with the nature and the extent of U.S. involvement here? Do you think it's been, and this is obviously a huge question, if not the question, um, do you think it's been too little or too much or too much in one direction, too little in another direction? What's your take on on how we have dipped our toes into the water of this conflict so far? Well, let's see how it goes, you know, tomorrow and the next day. But I mean, I certainly endorse President Biden's absolute insistence that we ain't going to fight in Ukraine. No troops going to Ukraine. Uh, This, you know, the reluctance, I think, appropriate uh, to implement a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Uh, Politically, I think President Biden's in in pretty weak position. As we we look look forward to the congressional elections just a few months from now and then 2024, right around the corner, you think about the problems besetting the country, uh, inflation, perhaps from a political point of view, being the most uh, most important. Uh, but by God, he has stuck to his guns on not wanting us involved in a shooting war in Ukraine. And I think that is absolutely the right thing. I hope he sticks with it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I have one final question for you, sir. Um, you write in the Spectator op-ed, as the old radio serial, serial had it, evil lurks in the hearts of men. And you continue on to say, even in an era of Google, Apple, 5G, Uber, and Grubhub. I loved that line. I thought it was very poignant. And it reminded me of something we've been talking a lot about on this podcast over the course of this invasion, which is we kind of take for granted how uh, new nuclear technology is in the span of of human existence. We've been coping with this for less than a century. And after the Cold War ended, we just sort of assumed we had kind of figured it out. Um, Do you see this as sort of part of the adjustment phase and part of this painful process of the countries around the world adjusting to the reality that uh, nuclear technology can can be devastating in an instant? Um, And that's what you know, that's what the West is reacting to with Putin, and it's what Putin is reacting to with the West in this case. That's a good question. I don't know if I have a good answer, but it does seem to me that uh, this is the first crisis in a real long time in which it's overshadowed uh, by by nukes, uh, where the possibility of nuclear weapons use that may not be in the forefront of the policy conversation, but it's hovering in the background. Uh, and in that sense, that alone in, in, in kind of violates a taboo that seemed to be well-established. What that all means once we get past this immediate crisis, I don't know. Uh, and by God, you have to be worried if nuclear use, possible nuclear use is sort of back on, is moving to the front burner. I don't know if that's going to happen. 
It's so odd because it, it depends on our ability to, and that's why you get into so many people trying to read Putin's mind, and it's the same thing in North Korea. It gets into this weird question of, you know, somebody has this power at their fingertips and they can use it basically as they as they please. And, you know, you can't be in their minds. And that's a very odd place for humanity to be situated in. Yes, right. I mean, at the end of the day, I have to think that whether we're talking about Kim in North Korea or Putin in the Kremlin that uh, that they don't have a death wish uh, and that that alone becomes a source of, of self-restraint. But again, who knows? <laughs> My own view would be let's, let's not test the proposition uh, uh, because if you, get, if, you, if you get that one wrong, then, you know, it's Katie by the door. And actually, I do have one quick final question. Uh, this is more practical. With all of the propaganda sort of being spun, um, where do you or what would your advice be for you know news consumers, average news consumers, trying to get reliable information on what's happening here? You know, honestly, that's a great question. I, I ask that question to my colleagues at, at Quincy. You know, where, where do you, who are you folks listening to? What, what sites are you consulting? Because I don't think I'm personally very savvy uh, in being able to scan the media horizon to, you know, identify what's relevant. Uh, I, I have to say that one of the things that strikes me is, and you know, that's the first thing I do when I get up in the morning, you know, read, read a bunch of stuff online, get the update. And the update tends to be nothing much has happened. I mean, it's, it's, it's more of the same, or it's more of the same and even worse. Uh, but it's hard to, in, in that great, you know, conversation, it's hard to identify what's of significance. Uh, but that reflects my own limitations as a consumer of news. Uh, and I think some of my colleagues are a lot savvier in that regard. It's difficult either way. Andrew Basevich, president of the Quincy Institute, thank you so much for your time today. Glad to be with you. All right. Well, I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. You've been listening to another edition of The Federalist Radio Hour. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the...